Is it working? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, you're welcome, everybody, as I kicked the mic off. But I, that was... Okay. <clears throat> the most important thing that you want me to do is start my timer so I know how long I'm taking. <laughs> I'm not promising it's going to change anything, but at least I'll be aware kind of how, much, how, how long I'm doing. Um, so this morning, I have the privilege of launching our new mini-series, which is called Undivided. Uh, we've just finished looking at a series on the Holy Spirit several weeks um, about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives. Um, And this is kind of of a new mini-series, but it's also kind of of a continuation of that. So my title this morning is Undivided, One Body, One Spirit. We're going to be looking over the next four weeks about how the Holy Spirit unites us as a family. I'm going to start by reading from Ephesians uh, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Hopefully it will pop up in a second. This is the only slide I have for you to look at this morning. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, This is Paul. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So uh, I'm just going to pray. pray. Uh, Father, just pray as we're looking at your word this morning that um, you would give us grace. Give me grace to kind of speak well and speak rightly of you. Um, and I pray you give us grace to hear, Lord, to hear what you are speaking to us and to have soft hearts to receive your words. Amen. Uh, this is Apostle Paul, so um, he's one of the most important figures in the early church, and he's writing to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, the letter would likely have been circulated among the churches and read aloud for believers to hear and be encouraged. Um, in the first of the verses we just heard, Paul urges his listeners to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Um, while preparing for this, I've seen this verse described as the kind of hinge point as the letter. Because in the first the six chapters in Ephesians, first three chapters, Paul is uh, talking about what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. And there's no commands at all. And then this, uh, at this point, he says, therefore, um, meaning in light of everything that I've just told you about what God's doing, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So based on the things I've been telling you about everything that God's been doing, this is how you should now live. So Paul tells the Ephesians, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received from God. In the next three chapters, he's going to unpack a bit of what that looks like for us to live that kind of life. And the first thing I want us to notice this morning is that um, whereas I might immediately think of things like personal holiness, prayer, um, good works, evangelism, all of which are really important, um, Paul starts by talking about living in a way that builds up the church. For some of us, that might seem like a bit of a non sequitur. We think he might be going on something more impressive. But he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which makes me think perhaps this is more important for Paul than it is for us um, in our society sometimes. In the 21st century West, we're in danger of preaching a Christian faith in which the church is a kind of helpful add-on to my relationship with God. 
Um, and in the New Testament, the church is absolutely integral to the Christian life. So why is the difference? Um, Bob suggested this last week, and we can be easily influenced by the culture around us. So even in the church, there's beliefs that we hold that we just take for granted because they're so strongly rooted in the history of thought in our society. We think they're self-evident. This is just obviously true. But actually, they've come down to us through philosophy, philosophy, through a history of thought, and then been kind of diffused, kind of dispersed through culture. Um, and they're spread so deeply in our culture and so widely that they're just like the air we breathe. We absorb them, and we're not even aware of it because they've just always surrounded us like ox- oxygen. Um, and one of the key characteristics of our society is that it's an individualistic society. In fact, um, the dominant way of understanding the world in our culture has been described as expressive individualism. So in this worldview, everything starts with the individual. The basic building block of society is the individual. Identity comes from within us, and each of us has the task of identifying truth and meaning for ourselves. So we say things like, you've got to do what's right for you. You do you, and you've got to be true to yourself. Those are expressive individualist statements. Um, We find our sense of identity primarily in our personal characteristics, abilities and achievements, rather than our membership of, say, families or other groups, that might be the case in other cultures. Um, We see education more in terms of discovering and developing our own personal talents and less in terms of shaping us for the world. We see almost everything from music to morality as a matter of personal choice, And anything that restricts our ability to choose is seen as oppressive and constrictive. To some degree or other, we're all shaped by this worldview. So it's easy as Christians to think, yes, that's what people in the world think. But actually, um, as Carl Truman, a um, historian and pastor, has written, when it comes to how we think of ourselves, we are all expressive individualists now, to some degree or other. Um, Because we're from an individualistic culture, we have a tendency to read the Bible in an individualistic way. Struggling with that word. Uh, We can think of our faith primarily in individual terms. So my salvation, my relationship with God, my faith journey, and we can relegate the role of the church to the background. So think about, um, this one might prove a little bit controversial, but think about the typical ways that we share the gospel within our culture we tend to start with the individual. So we will tend to say, this is your current spiritual situation, and these are the steps that you can take to improve it. This is how Jesus is going to help you improve your situation. Um, And it's absolutely true to say to somebody who's not a Christian, you are dead in your sin, and you are in need of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. We need to hear that. But I just want to highlight that. From the very beginning of our Christian journey, Christianity is primarily often presented to us as something that's going to help us which is kind of in line with the culture that we live in. Perhaps you're not a Christian, um, and your response to Christianity is, well, I can take it or leave it. It's something that's being offered to me, and maybe I want it, maybe I don't. If I don't want it, actually, I'm fine, thanks. You can keep that religion because it's not for me. I need to do what's right for me. You do you. Um, Perhaps you are a Christian, you've believed the gospel, but actually, maybe you still have to some degree or other, maybe we all have to some degree or other, the same sort of mindset towards our faith. We see it as something that's primarily about our own personal growth and fulfillment. And we look in the Bible, maybe mainly to find encouraging truths that are going to boost our sense of well-being. Church commitments, almost like the many other choices that are offered to us by all these companies in our culture. Um, And so we can select meetings that we want to attend and serving opportunities, almost a bit like products. You know, I'll take 
I'll take the kind of this tier of church membership. Um, it's important to recognize that the biblical worldview is not individualistic in the way that our worldview is individualistic. I made it through that word twice there. Uh, the story it tells includes the offer of salvation for each of us as individuals if we will trust in Jesus. And that's hugely important to us. But the biblical gospel is actually bigger than that. The biblical story of the gospel is bigger than that. Um, Think about the four Gospels in the Bible. If you see the Gospel as essentially a personal salvation manual, then when you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's almost confusing. You know, you go, hang on a minute. There's not that much in there directly, explicitly, about my personal salvation. Instead, what we get is four stories about the life of Jesus. And in them all historical accounts of the life of Jesus. And in them, we can see Jesus talk about the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. What is that? So this isn't just the good news that you can be forgiven of your sins, though it includes that. It's the good news that Jesus is king. It's good news about historical cosmic events that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world to recognize people to God to restore all that was broken, and to build a new community of worshippers, the church. Jesus has ridden from the dead, he's defeated sin and death, and he is now the king over all creation. In one sense, this is actually bad news for us, because Jesus is Lord, and he's going to return to judge the living and the dead, and we're sinners, we're those who have rebelled against him. So we've rebelled against the king of the universe, who's going to return to judge the living and the dead. So that first bit of the gospel is actually bad news. So when the apostle Peter um, preaches the gospel at Pentecost at the start of Acts, he doesn't actually say initially, here's how you can be forgiven. He says, uh, he tells them about the life of Jesus, and he says, um, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And then the people say to him, they're cut to heart, and they say, what must we do then? And then he says, repent and believe, and you can be forgiven. So yet the good news for us is that in the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, we can find redemption and forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness are offered to all those who will repent of their sins, come before him and bow the knee. And amnesty is preached by this king in the name of this king. And all you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is to believe that he is Lord, that he has risen from the dead, and that he will forgive you if you come to him. His death means that you can be forgiven simply through trusting his free offer. And that's good news for all of us. But it doesn't stop there. Because those who believe in Jesus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself coming to live inside them, and become part of his body, the church. In Ephesians, Paul uses a number of pictures to try to communicate the mystery of the church. Um, one of the things, ways we tend to talk about Ephesians is chapters 1 to 3, that's my identity, Chapters four to six, that's how I live it out. But actually, Paul talks so much about the church in this letter. And sometimes we can kind of, we can kind of overlook actually how much this letter is about the church. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 11, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as I was, prepared, as I was kind of thinking about this, it seemed to me that um, we kind of read this as Paul saying, I'm God's workmanship. But Paul doesn't actually say we're all God's works. He says we, plural, are his workmanship, singular. So I think what Paul's saying here, I'm not sort of too strong on this, but I take this as God is building us collectively 
into one amazing work, which is the church. So we are God's workmanship, the church. Um, prepared, uh, created to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. But together, um, Ephesians um, 2, verse 19 to 20, then Paul says that both Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens, I'm just quoting here from 19 to 22, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're God's, from what Paul said there, we're God's citizens, we're members of his new community. We are God's household, members of his family. We're being built together into a holy temple, a place where God himself can dwell. We are the place where God is worshipped and where his presence dwells on earth. Then in Ephesians 5, Paul uses even more intimate language um, to talk about the church when he describes the church as the bride of Christ. And actually, in the passage we read here, and in other places, he goes even further when he describes the church as the body of Christ, over which he is the head. So we become members of the very body of Christ, his bride, his household, and his temple. These are all pictures trying to show us what Jesus is doing in building a new community. And if we think of the Old Testament... The story of Israel, which is God's people, God's holy community. Um, this is a community uh, in the church that is so identified with Jesus through his Holy Spirit that it is part of him. The church belongs to Jesus and it's his own body. Now, when we look at the start of the book of Acts, we can see that Luke, the author, says this really strange thing. Um, he's written a gospel of Luke to this Theophilus, and then he's writing another letter, Acts. And he says at the beginning, in the first book, that's his gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You think, hang on, he's told us like the whole story, pretty much. We haven't had Jesus' ascension yet, but we've had his life, his death and resurrection. We've had almost all of Jesus' life. But he says he began to do and teach. But then I think what's happening is here in Acts, it's like what he's, he's writing about what Jesus is continuing to do, his, do and teach on earth through his body, which is the church. So God's at work in the world through the Holy Spirit, building his body, the church. So if we go back to that thing about living life worthy of the calling you've received, I think, put into this context, what Paul says makes perfect sense to me. When he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received, and then quickly moves talking about how to maintain unity and build up the church, it fits. It's like he's saying, you've been brought from death and darkness and alienation into this glorious plan, the church. Now commit to this plan. Commit to the health and growth of the church. Don't pull it apart. Don't cause division in Jesus' body in which his Holy Spirit dwells. So hopefully we can see that this unity is crucial. Unity in the church is important. It's not a secondary issue in Christianity. But what is the unity that we're to maintain? Because we live in a world in which there's no shortage of heresy and false teaching. Um, even among lots of people that call themselves Christians. And we see Christian denominations kind of go astray on certain issues. So this is a world which we also need to fight to preserve the truth of the gospel. What does it mean for us to be united? What are the bounds of unity? And when do we need to actually break off relationship with other people that call themselves Christians? This is not unity at all costs. I think we have some clues in the passage that we're looking at. So firstly, Paul speaks about maintaining the unity of the spirit 
in the bond of peace, adding that there is one body and one spirit. So we're already united with other Christians in the body of Christ, the church, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in each of us. Wherever I go in the world, whenever I meet a Christian from any nation or race or social class or family background, we have the most important things in common. We are both members of God's family and his Holy Spirit lives, in, lives inside both of us. When I meet another Christian in any place from any background, I am meeting a brother or a sister. What unites us is greater than anything that might divide us. And over the next three weeks, we might, we're going to be looking at some of the things that could have potential to bring division and sometimes do. But we need to remember this, that what unites us, what brings us together, is always in the church bigger than anything that might separate us. It's more important, it's more significant, it's deeper, and it's longer lasting. Because what unites us is going to last into eternity, and anything that divides us is temporary. Then Paul also speaks of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we're to maintain unity with other Christians who recognize Jesus as Lord, who share that one faith, who've been baptized into his name, and who share the small o orthodox historic Christian beliefs that are summarized in the church creeds. We should aim to live at peace with all people, as far as it depends on us, but we're only called to maintain unity with other Christians who hold to the one true faith. In order to get this right, uh, we need to distinguish between the kinds of disagreements that would cause us to break off relationship with people and the kinds of disagreements that wouldn't. And the thing that I find really helpful here, um, I've got from Andrew Wilson. He got it from someone called Keith Drury, who got it from his son, who got it from someone else. So I don't know what the illustration is. Um, but the illustration is this. There's beliefs that are written in pencil. There's beliefs that are written in ink. And there's beliefs that are written in blood. And we need to not mix it up. So some beliefs are written in pencil. They're not taught directly in the Bible. They might be kind of practically wise ways of living out the Bible's teaching that we attempt to apply where we are. So, for example, if we were in a, you know, if you live in a, a town, let's say you live in a small town where there's rampant alcoholism, you might teach that really Christians should not drink alcohol. Um, but we don't have, any, don't have any authority from the Bible to apply that to all Christians at all times and all places. And if other Christians somewhere else do drink alcohol in moderation, um, with a clear conscience, we shouldn't refuse to associate with them. There's all kinds of beliefs that fall in this category. So from whether it's okay to read books with wizards in them, to whether we're allowed to eat factory farmed meat, there's all kinds of things where we're going to have different moral opinions and different views, but we need to just accept that we have different kind of our consciences in different places on those issues. Um, but then there's beliefs that are written in ink. So these are doctrinal issues that concern different interpretations of biblical teaching. Um, they're based on our understanding of the Bible. Some examples of ink beliefs from our church are that baptism is for believers, not infants. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. And Christians are predestined for salvation. We hold these beliefs sincerely and they really matter to us. But we're able to accept that there's other genuine believers who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who hold different interpretations in these areas. And then there's beliefs that are written in blood. And those are, those are the ones that are contained in the, the creeds, the church creeds, the core teachings of the Christian faith. Um, all Christians are going to agree with these. And we wouldn't recognize somebody as a Christian if they don't believe these things. 
things like the uh, truth about the Trinity, the person of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, Jesus' death and resurrection, and so on. These are the beliefs for which we should be prepared to lay down our lives and over which there cannot be any compromise. We're not willing to negotiate or discuss these issues. If somebody doesn't recognize that Jesus rose from the dead, we do not recognize them as a Christian. And we're not called to maintain unity with them. We should live lovingly towards them and seek to live peaceably, but we're not called to maintain unity with people that disagree on the, um, the beliefs that are written in blood. Often the problems come when we mix up the categories or if we fail to recognize any differences between them. So saying that a certain type of music should be used in worship is not the same as saying that people should or shouldn't seek to use spiritual gifts in Christian meetings, which is absolutely not the same as saying that Jesus did or didn't rise from the dead. For pencil issues, we should never break off fellowship with other Christians. That's my view. I'm hoping the elders agree, haven't each other. But for pencil issues, we should never break off fellowship. We just agree that we disagree on those things. For blood issues, we should always be willing, willing to break, uh, break off fellowship with heretics. For ink issues, we're going to need discernment. How damaging is the teaching that we disagree with? How important is the issue? Notice that Paul urges the Ephesian Christians to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So it's not a unity at all costs. There might be situations where it's not possible to continue living in unity with certain people, churches or denominations, but our heart always has to be for unity. We seek unity in the church as far as it is possible while still remaining faithful. Okay, so you're pleased now. I'm coming to my third and final point, which is how do we maintain unity in the church? I'm hoping that... Um, you're kind of on board with like, this is important and this is a thing that matters, but how do we do it? So I've already just mentioned eagerness. Paul talks about being eager uh, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Um, if we look back at the passage, I'd just like to draw out four other things. I'll do three together as one point and then one as a separate thing. And the, the other qualities that Paul mentions are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. We take gentleness, patience, and love. They're listed among the fruits of the Spirit that Paul uh, mentions in Galatians 5. And Steve spoke to us about this a few weeks ago uh, in the Holy Spirit series, uh, about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. I'd like us to see the connection between the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh and the idea of unity in the church. So if you look at the works of the flesh mentioned in Galatians, they all bring disunity. There's nothing on that list that doesn't cause divisions and issues. But a number of them also explicitly relate to disunity. Uh, Paul mentions enmity, strife, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This actually takes quite a kind of important place in the list. And they're listed in the middle of other works of the flesh, like sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies. So think about that. Sorcery... And divisions are equally listed as works of the flesh. On the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit promotes unity and the healing of divisions. If you think about that list, when we have genuine love for one another and want the best for each other, 
when we are gentle, as Bob says, uh, when, we, when we have genuine love for one another and want the best for each other, when we are gentle and patient with, one, with each other, when we are kind to each other, when we are faithful towards one another, we build strong, healthy relationships. All of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5 promote strong, healthy, positive relationships, just as the works of the flesh bring division. So the first remedy for division in the church is not to try hard through our human efforts, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the good fruit of the Spirit's presence in our lives enables us to have healthy relationships with others in the church, both within and beyond our denomination. Nobody can legitimately claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit if they repeatedly act in a way that brings divisions. If we claim to be a Spirit-filled church, we should also be living in a way that promotes unity. And then the last remedy that I want to suggest is the first quality that Paul mentions, which is humility. When I thought about this, this is one of kind of the main things I wanted to talk about. I think humility is so important for maintaining unity. Because so often pride is at the center of disunity. I consider myself more important than somebody else. I think that my needs are more important than others. Where there's disagreement, I'm overly sure of the rightness of my own position or my own understanding of the issues. I'm easily convinced that I'm in the right and the other person is in the wrong. I'm reluctant to back down, accept I was wrong, or apologize. My ego is easily bruised, but my heart is hard and insensitive. So I remember Jeff Mayle, who many of you know, who leads our church in Whitstable, um, several years ago in a sermon at City Church Canterbury when we were both members of City Church, um, observing that as Christians we should have hard skin and soft hearts. But he said too often we have hard hearts and soft skin. Humility is thick-skinned. I see myself in the correct perspective and I realize that I'm not owed anything. I understand that only God is worthy of glory and honor. Humility is soft-hearted. I see how much I have been forgiven and how broken I am and in need of God's mercy. And I'm quick to forgive others and look on their weaknesses and their failings compassionately. Pride is hard-hearted and soft-skinned. I feel like I'm owed a lot and I have little compassion for those who are failing. Truly humble people are overwhelmed with gratitude that purely by the grace of God, they're not only forgiven and accepted, but they actually get to be part of the church. Proud people easily find fault in the church and grumble or get uppity if things do not go as they want. Humble people are quick to recognize their own shortcomings. Proud people are quick to recognize other people's shortcomings. Humble people are servants. Proud people are consumers. Humble people build bridges of love towards others through kindness and service. Proud people burn bridges through quarrels and sulking. Humble people actively seek reconciliation with others. Proud people wait for others to come running to them. If we're full of the Spirit and if we're humble, we can have disagreements with others in the church, perhaps even significant ones, but we can still live in a way that promotes unity and the healing of divisions. And I think one great example of this that I wanted to talk about is Tim Keller, um, who died just last month. 
Tim Keller was a pastor and author who had a huge influence on the American and the Western church, both in his denomination and way beyond his denomination. So he's a member of the PCA, which is the Presbyterian Church of America, but he worked with others from many other denominations, and he had a heart to train pastors, and particularly to see healthy churches established in big cities. Um, in a culture which is often highly politicized, and in which many people build platforms by publicly taking down their opponents, Tim Keller consciously avoided getting involved in uh, partisan politics, or publicly criticizing others. Among the many tributes to and anecdotes about Tim Keller following his death, this one stood out to me as a great example of how to face disagreement with humility and grace. Uh, so Colin Hansen, writing Christianity Today, in an article called Tim Keller Practiced the Great His Grace He Preached, recounts that in 2017, Princeton Theological Seminary, one of the main theological seminaries in the United States, chose to award Keller the Kuiper Prize for excellence in reformed theology and public witness. This meant that he would go to PTS to deliver um, lectures and to receive the prize. However, the decision to award him the prize met with surreal backlash from many students and alumni due to Keller's traditional views on sexuality and women's ordination. And under pressure from various advocacy groups, PTS withdrew the awards. Now, Tim Keller didn't take to social media to criticize the decision. He didn't wade into a culture war. Instead, what was his reaction? He didn't receive the award, but he agreed to go to PTS and to attend the conference and deliver the lectures anyway. I think it's just one small example of how a humble heart works to heal divisions. So, how? How do you become humble? As you know, like if you try really hard to be humble, at a certain point you really think, okay, yeah, I'm really humble now. Oh, no, you actually, oh, no, I'm actually proud. And maybe, maybe you start looking down on people that are less humble than you. Um, so what's the answer? And I, I gave you the answer I think Tim Keller might have said, um, though more eloquently than I would, which is that the answer is to increasingly immerse ourselves in the gospel. Contrary to our individualistic society's belief that we're essentially good people who deserve good things, the gospel shows us that we're sinners who deserve only judgment, but that God so loved us that he sent his son to die for us so that we might be forgiven. As Keller famously taught, he's got one quote which popped up in these articles several times, for which he's really famous. The gospel tells us that we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine, yet more loved than we ever dared hope. The gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we ever dared imagine, yet more loved than we ever dared hope. So through trusting in Jesus, we've been forgiven our sins. We've been made spiritually alive and welcomed into his family, the church. When we really understand the good news, we realize we've done nothing to deserve any of this. We don't deserve to be a part of the church, and yet we get to be part of the church. Despite our sin, we've got the privilege of belonging to God's household, the bride of Christ, his own body. As the psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. We get to dwell in the house of our God. So when church isn't going as we would like and we feel that people are failing to see us or failing to value us appropriately, we can remember that God valued us enough to send his son for us, that he welcomed us when we deserved only his rejection and that we've been given a secure place in his family because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our transgressions. This puts all the relational difficulties we have into some perspective. Sure, they criticize me, but I really am a sinner. And... I'm in fact much worse than their criticism suggests. You know, like the worst criticism I've ever had from anyone 
is only scratching the surface of how morally depraved I am. And yet I tend to get really uppity about it. And how dare they say that? Okay? I'm much worse than their criticism suggests. And yet Jesus has forgiven me, so I can forgive them too. Perhaps they overlooked me in some way, or they failed to treat me as I would like. But I realize that I'm still being treated more kindly than I actually deserve. Like, if I deserve hell, and I get to be in the church and somebody has been a bit rude to me, I'm getting a lot better than I deserve. It's still possible for me to become hurt by people, and I don't want to minimize that. Sometimes there's real hurt, right? But I'm not going to be quickly offended, and I'm going to be able to forgive others knowing that God in Christ forgave me. For those of us who are more in the center of the local church community, where we kind of really knitted in a relationship, maybe we've been here a long time, maybe kind of got roles in the church, um, the gospel reminds us that like the lost sheep, we were out in the cold and Jesus brought us in. So we should also have a heart to reach out to those on the edges of the church community and see them welcomed in so that there might be unity in the body. Okay, so kind of there, just summarize three, three things I'd like to remember. So one is we've been called into Christ's body, the church, and in order to live a life worthy of the calling we have received, we must live in a way that promotes the health and the unity of the church. We need to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might produce the good fruit that leads to healthy relationships. We can walk in humility by becoming more immersed in the gospel and understanding how much God has loved and forgiven us in Christ. We need to understand that we are more sinful than we dared believe, yet more loved than we ever dared hope, so that we are able to relate to others in the church with tough skin and soft hearts. Okay, I'm going to pray and then hopefully Mick will come up and sort of have a seamless transition. Yeah, Father, we just thank you for the gospel, um, that gospel which is way way bigger than we realize, all that you're doing and have done in history through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we're brought into that story, not as the main character, but we get to be members of your church. We are welcomed into your household. Where many people are walking around Herne Bay this morning, just kind of immersed in materialism. Thank you that we get to come and be in the church. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to see that clearly. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray help us to really, uh, that the gospel would really saturate us to change the way that we see, the way that we, uh, the way that we think about things. Just ask that in your name, Lord. Amen.